this is Jean Nathan from Crosstown Conversations, and this is our very first um, online video version of our radio show, uh, which we are now going to keep posting on our website, Crosstown Conversations. So if you found this and you're seeing this, congratulations, you're smarter than me. At any rate, um, we have some really interesting people on the show today. I know I always say that, but you're going to want to hear what they have to offer because Dana Ennis and Marion Miller uh, with Stay Local um, are doing a lot to try to promote our small local businesses that we have throughout the city. So that's, uh, that's number one. Um, two, um, I hope that um, we're going to have Gene Monero who talks about... Um, his organization, Ella Project, which generally offers legal advice to creators, but right now is helping creators access some of that federal uh, funding that uh, has been and will again become available. So um, definitely um, stay with us, uh, listen up. Um, we may broadcast this same uh, program on our radio show coming next Friday. Um, today, Friday, um, Wendell Pierce has my time slot, and I've been listening to his show. That's great, too. So definitely tune in at noon on WBOK. Here we go with um, Stay Local. So today, as we still continue to worry about how our, um, you know, the numbers, the, the inevitable numbers we read about, the, the death rates, the new case rates, the hospitalization rates, and so on. Um, we, all of us, still have this really pressing need to try to do whatever we can do. And um, an organization that I immediately thought of uh, in terms of what they were going to try to do to help us, because there are so many businesses that are affected by this, was the organization that looks after our local um, uh, business outlets are, and, and, and it is called, well, it's under the arm uh, of, of Urban Conservancy, but it's called Stay Local. Uh, Dana Ennis, who you see, uh, or you can hear, depending on how you're getting this feed, um, and Marianne, last name, Miller? Thank challenging you. Challenging to pronounce last name, yes. No, I'm just, I have the worst name memory in the entire universe. Like sometimes I can't remember my own last name. So um, are with us to talk about Stay Local and uh, generally speaking what it does, but specifically right now, um, how you are trying to do your share to help the situation. So um, either one of you can start and um, let's, let's roll. I'll start big and then Marianne can kind of drill down and tell you what is happening right now. As you said, um, what kind of uh, outreach she's doing to the businesses, what she's hearing, and um, then what steps we're taking in response to what we're hearing. But um, just for folks that aren't familiar with a Stay Local in general, we've been around since 2003. We were one of the first initiatives um, of the Urban Conservancy, Conservancy, which was founded in 2001 in response to um, sort of land use issues and making sure people had the information they needed to weigh in on things that were happening in their their neighborhoods. The, the impetus was the big Walmart um, on Chapatulas that went in kind of before people uh, who were immediately affected by it had an opportunity to know what was happening there to um, including the business owners along Magazine Street to, to um, make their voices heard. And so that was the beginning. But by 2003, it was the, the founders, uh, Jeff Coates and Melendez and, 
and others were like, we don't want to be the anti-Walmart people. So how can we embrace local, uh, the local economy and the idea of localism? And so that's where the stay local model um, took root. And that was, it's really about hugging, <laughs> embracing our, our local businesses and making them as strong as possible um, in the face of very deep um, marketing pockets that um, our, our publicly traded corporations have and that they're up against and competing against. Obviously, um, back then it was big boxes and now it's Amazon, which is the big uh, threat to, um, to their um, very existence. And then overlay that with what we have now with the pandemic. Um, and we understand as you do too, um, Jean, you know, that businesses take many shapes and forms. Our creatives are a big part of our local economy and they're the entrepreneurs um, that are um, creating our music and our food and the, the, you know, the cultural touchstones that are so important to us. They're also our best employers and they are our, our very conscientious employers. And in this time during the shutdown, they're very concerned about how to um, run a business and keep their employees safe and whole through this process um, to, to the other side, um, whatever that looks like, and to continue in whatever that new normal looks like. And so that's where Stay Local comes in, in terms of hearing what they have to say, and then uh, turning that into whatever policy asks or demands uh, that we're making, and whatever uh, uh, networking and educational resources that we create. So. Okay, so uh, thank you for that. That's a perfect um, setup. Um, now, let, let's go right into it because um, uh, a lot of that information that I'm hearing you are trying to reach out and secure from um, uh, businesses that are operating or at the moment, uh, many of them not operating or operating at extremely uh, limited uh, bases. Um, what's going on? Well, you know, business owners are facing a lot of challenges in terms of do I pivot? How far back do I scale? Um, what's, my, what's my reach? What's my marketing effort? And then, of course, the other side of it, all the paperwork and everything they're having to do to apply for loans. So uh, we at Stay Local, we've operated an online directory of local businesses almost the length of our existence or half the time we've existed. So now here's everyone else, right? And this is great. We have more platforms hosting who's local and who's open than we've ever had before. So we've helped to take a little bit off a business owner's plate by all of us together saying, we're going to use these online resources as ways to know how we can pick up or uh, pick up curbside or receive delivery from not just restaurants, bookstores, gifts, places with gifts, all kinds of things. Um, and then on the tactical side, you know, hearing from business owners or reaching out to them to know exactly what's happening with their loan and figure out if there's a way we can facilitate or help them reach uh, and, and a level of assistance beyond just waiting, okay, I put my paperwork in for the SBA EIDL, the disaster loan, or if they put their paperwork in for the PPP. So the levels of advocacy, and, and this has, has always been, you know, strength of stay local. We've we've worked locally and nationally. So with national partners, what can we say 
to the next round and the next round of assistance that helps it be more equitable, better distributed to minority owned businesses, better distributed to um, persons who, you know, are supported by the festival industry. We've seen a lot of support for the gig economy, but what about the kinds of things, for example, that, you know, haven't been thought of, like the number of businesses that have seasonal employees that are really struggling to be able to conform to a, a payroll protection program standard where it's show us your payroll and then do the math of how many people that is. Well, if they're seasonal and they have four employees one month and um, and 12 another month, you know, that's, that's egregious. That's more for them to have to think about. So, so also matching those business owners with some of the assistance that's out there to help with really specific answers. And, and while we're doing that, we're in touch with everyone all over the country that's doing that to see what's bubbling up. What are the common sort of challenges that maybe can roll into another stimulus or, or other types of assistance? I mean, the stimulus, these are loans, partly forgivable, but what about the direct assistance? What about helping businesses of a certain size and under rather than the SBA definition of small, which is 500 employees or fewer? What about you know, is there a role out there for helping a, a specific sector or a specific business? Um, and those are some of the national conversations that we're contributing to. Um, but it's everything from just answering the phone, answering emails, all of what we're doing. <clears throat> but, uh, uh, and, and also I just want to add um, my own uh, concern because an organization like mine, a nonprofit, and even my small, uh, I still have a small for-profit that um, is primarily certain kinds of consulting work that my husband does. I'm really not um, pulling in a lot of money from that at the moment. So what about those of us who are work with nothing but contractors? Uh, that's, that's right. the, I, I, I said this to Dana this morning, this is a real issue. There is a lot of us. I know there's a lot of us. I don't know what the numbers are who can't afford full-time employees and wind up with contractors. And now, mind you, by the time you finish with two or three contractors, you probably paid a full-time person. But I pull in different kinds of skills. So I have somebody working with me who's computer savvy. I have somebody right. working with me who does editorial work, you know, et cetera. But I, I couldn't do any one of them on a full-time basis. So uh, just very specifically and personally, this is something that's on my mind and I'm thinking, I got a lot of company out there. I'm not the only one at all in that category. You're not. And and it's not hindsight being 2020. This is a functioning, healthy way for your business to operate. It, it doesn't necessarily mean... <laughs> It doesn't mean let's rewrite this. It means let's meet people where they are. So if these top-down folks haven't seen this kind of work to the degree that we're all witnessing it, then it's more for us to bring this conversation up, bubble, let it bubble up at the at the Washington level of, okay, you know, and Goldman Sachs 10,000 small businesses has this data. They have, if you go to their website, great data on the number of businesses, you know, not just, okay, 500 and under or 100 and under, but also other subsets in terms of very small, you know, 10 below. Um, th there's a high percentage of businesses that small in Orleans par Parish. There's actually a, a slightly higher percentage of businesses that are, uh, that are small, 20 and under in Jefferson Parish. So these are, are, um, are things that are, are being ignored or, or not cast enough light on nationally. But it's also interesting for our personal context, right, to be able to say in, a, in an atmosphere where we are dependent on our culture bearers and our artists and the ways in which our festivals are unique in, their own, in, each, in each in their own way because of some of 
what this contribution is from, from people who are self-employed or who use contract or are contract employees for others. Um, going into a summer time that is extremely slow traditionally without an essence festival or other festivals. Um, and then, you know, coming into potential hurricane season challenges last year, Barry forced us to close our city. That was lost revenue that who knows if people have recovered from still. And, and we have a warm gulf uh, early on. A warm gulf early on is always a marker for potentially a stronger storm. So yeah, that's also that. Mm -hmm. So is there a way that even though we're bubbling these conversations up nationally and looking for federal help, if it comes to us in the form of state or, or municipal assistance, how can we be prepared to then give feedback? This is the best place for this to go. This is how to get it into the hands of the people who need it most. Yep, yep. Um, so uh, looking forward, also, so we so we have the, the, the what we're going through at the moment and, um, I'm having trouble understanding why it's so hard to make the connection between the awareness that we have uh, what we call a gig economy increasingly uh, nationwide and not just in hospitality and, and culture and some of the obvious places, but um, major corporations have been uh, looking to the idea of giggers as a way of getting out of paying health benefits and insurance and, and all of that. So this is a trend that, that's operating at, at many levels, not just at this smaller business level. So um, what's so hard about understanding that if there's a big gig economy that the organizations that have been hiring the gigs are highly Im impacted. And again, they're not employees, they are, they are contractors for the most part, giggers are contractors. So uh, I've been saying, thinking, in, in general, what I'm finding is that this whole COVID situation is pulling back the curtain on a lot of factors in our economy, in our society, in our political world um, that we kind of knew were there, but weren't focused on. We were just going about our daily business. But now we're saying, oh, wow, wait a minute. The death rate is six, you know, 60%, 70% of... Um, uh, lower income blacks is is that much higher than what the rate is in in a more middle class white community, which is more like I don't know what it is twenty percent. I don't actually know that number. I more I know more at this point the number of of people who are really suffering and dying. So that's one thing. That's the most egregious. And and then there are just the the fact the recent fact I don't know if you've heard this one I, I imagine you have but that people in highly polluted areas are 15 percent more likely to die from COVID than in unpolluted so that's another very interesting factor and then for us I think this whole question of our reliance on the petrochemical and hospitality industries um, rather than having a, a, a more diverse economy is another really important thing that we kind of have all known about, but we certainly didn't focus on it as something that we were trying to, to change. I don't think any of us thought we could change the reliance on petrochemical. Well, now that it's minus, whatever that means, that is so confusing. How, how does the COVID situation, both while we're in it and as we emerge into later phases, because I can't say when it's over, but just later phases, you know, how does that affect us? Are, are, is this a moment in time where we could actually push our 
um, political leaders to think about, well, maybe we shouldn't be just giving away um, incentives to the petrochemical industry. Maybe we should be incentivizing the creative industries, for example. Sure, creative industries, small manufacturing. We saw Dixie Brewery come back. Um, there, there are there are improvements there. We have at Stay Local a really great opportunity in that we work with entrepreneurial entrepreneurial support organizations. So, I mean, I think there are many strong but just small uh, groups of people thinking what what you're saying, Jean. Thinking the same, which is diversify the economy. Is there a, a tech um, company here now that we can throw support at to help it be what it can grow into? Um, manufacturing um, tests or, um, you know, the biotech that we have here, what, you know, what can we do to help those companies so that that diversity that you're talking about among the types of businesses um, is broader. And, you know, those are, those are some of the silver linings we could see. But yes, the question is, I guess, how squeaky those wheels are, who, you know, how, those people as they're running their businesses are then also having to advocate for themselves as the business owner. And that's, that's a challenge. Um, but, but I know there are at least a couple of um, tech companies locally that have said, that had said early on, you know, how do we pivot from what we were doing to being able to either manufacture, distribute, test, do testing, that kind of thing for the um, COVID climate as it goes on in terms of, um, in terms of examining, you know, the, the blood samples from those who have, have had the, the virus. It, it reminds me a lot, the, the, the place that we're in at this moment, where most of the small business money is going to <clears throat> pay companies who had employees. So the idea is to keep those employees um, uh, sustainable in the next few months. But this reminds me a lot of, of in, in Katrina, we were up against FEMA regs, which said you just could, all, all you could get money for was to return to what was before. Remember that? Mm -hmm. We weren't allowed to do sure. something. We weren't allowed to put our money into a new kind of architecture, a new kind of infrastructure, a new kind of business. We had to go back to the old. Now, those who had the influence, of course, always can get around the regs. So there were people who were able to get money to do new things, but it wasn't your average Joe on the street. It wasn't your average company. So this reminds me so much of that phenomena. You know, return to normal? Never. We're not, it's not going to happen. So how do we, you tell me, what are you guys doing and, and, and what can the those of us out here who are not necessarily in an active organization doing what you're doing, how can we help resolve that, that, that um, policy mistake, basic mistake? Well, I, I can jump in here a, a, a bit and then Marianne, you may have some other things. I, I'm thinking that too about everything that um, was just said and um, in addition to sort of that idea of pivoting and sort of um, figuring out what can change locally um, to increase our ability to meet the needs, the local needs. Um, it fits into a much larger conversation about local self-reliance. And uh, one of our, our national partners actually is the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, um, which is an incredible um, treasure trove of information about 
different examples of, of these sort of like impossible um, David versus Goliath type efforts that various communities have, have taken and it gives you templates of like, well, this is what we did in Portland or, or um, you know, or Oklahoma City or whatever, right down to a sort of um, uh, policy language and that sort of thing that you can borrow and adapt. So on all sorts of, all sorts of issues, not just retail or, or um, uh, economy, but utilities, everything about what, how you can kind of change the conversation. And I think that's really what, if there's, if this, like any big disruption offers is a, a chance for some, some put harder pushing and maybe some more openness to some systemic change that, as you said, um, this has laid bare some of those um, systemic um, failures and giving, um, giving people that have been hollering about various things uh, for a long time uh, a larger audience because now it's making sense to more people what they're saying where in up until now for a lot of these issues people may have thought well that doesn't really affect me well everybody's affected right now and so there's this openness to hearing these other ideas so but what it gets down to gene is that kind of you, you know as you know is like that um tedious <laughs> work of actually changing um what the language says at the at the municipal, state, federal levels um, to, to level that playing field. I can't resist jumping in here and um, calling attention to two factors that are other threads that, um, that I think are gonna play out at the moment in Louisiana. And I, I think Dana, we might've talked about these for two seconds, but um, so uh, we're having, um, a, again, a moment of revelation in what's happening with the petrochemical industry, this um, idea of you know minus value of oil because there's just too much being pumped, and so all of a sudden, our it's not just the, the entire economy of the petrochemical industry that's collapsing. It the implications for state government are phenomenal because we've been so reliant on what little money we do get from the petrochemical industry, and I say little because it's not nearly what we should be getting. That goes back to Huey Long. You know, we've been trying to change that for a long time. But um, you have that factor in play. And then um, you also have this, the, this, this business of pollution and its connection to health that has been revealed uh, at this moment. So that's another factor. Um, but to correct me if I'm wrong, and I don't know how familiar you are with this, but are, are you aware of that group called um, Louisiana Together? Together Louisiana? Do you guys know about that group? So you know that they were successful in Baton Rouge to helping the community push back against um, incentives for ExxonMobil and keep that money in East Baton Rouge for their school system, right? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, to my knowledge, that's the first time there's been any kind of a really municipal pushback on um, those tax incentives for the petrochemical industry. And then in St. John the Parish, uh, St. John the Baptist Parish, there's been another uh, related, not exactly the same situation where uh, the, the, the people in the neighborhood said, wait, 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 we, we're going to give you tax incentives to pollute us? Wait, mm -hmm. that makes sense. And this group together, Louisiana, and I, I don't know enough about them, but they seem to be in the middle of that. So those, those trends, um, and then at the national level, you've got some pushback against Amazon's domination in a lot of ways. That's new also, and that is just coming to play. 
uh, as we're into this revelatory period through COVID. And then you finally, you have this whole uh, revelation that's going on uh, really about um, the inequality. I mean, inequality has been uh, the buzzword of the Democratic um, primaries and Bernie Sanders has been out there pushing it and thank God. And um, okay, he didn't make it into the uh, final uh, run, but he, he's changed the dialogue. And there are other people out there dealing with that dialogue, including a lot of people in Congress. So those are, those are very important trends that could help what we're talking about. And pulling them together is kind of a monumental and, and um, overwhelming job. Um, but you're, you're, you're in the crosshairs of it, you guys. So tell me how you are looking at those trends, because I'm sure you have been and your more specific job of helping the local businesses here. What are you seeing as how this dynamic is gonna go forward? Well, one thing is, well, two things. I, also, I, just to, to save us from being too optimistic is realizing too that while, we're, while we are seeing these opening up of these conversations on these different issues, meanwhile, the petrochemical industry is also looking at these opportunities to change things that they didn't like and they're pushing back one of the first things they said was, you know, given that we're under these under these um, terrible conditions right now, we are asking that you uh, suspend any and all uh, lawsuits uh, regarding coastal um, loss against um, the industry. So we we need to be aware of that um, as well. Um, burbling up, put, uh, them pushing harder for for ro regulatory ro rollbacks in order to help help them out. Um, but one thing, um, the opportunity is being viewed from both sides of the coin. Exactly. You know, yeah. We're looking at them, but the, the, uh, other guys on the, on, uh, with the big operations that, um, have been able to be, uh, collecting all those beautiful incentives, um, and, but they're in trouble too. And so they're saying, oh, let's yeah. get rid of those losses. This is good. Not only that, but going back to, there was one other point I wanted to make about that effort, um, of, of Together Louisiana. That was based on a law that I don't know how it got passed, when and by whom, that gave municipalities the right to say no. Mm -hmm. They're fighting that. That, they're up there lobbying against that right now, which is right. To pay attention to because that that was a factor that allowed for a community to say um no that doesn't yes. to our benefit okay. that could go away in a second if the petrochemical lobby wins their way so absolutely yeah and then to the, your other point is how what are we doing is is saying yeah that it is overwhelming because it is just sort of it you know all of these different all there are all of these different insecurities you know and it's affecting different people in different ways um, as I mentioned, you know, the, the health and the financial and the um, educational and, you know, it, it just goes on and on. Um, but stay local through that lens of the kind of the through the eyes of the local business owner that stay local member um, type business. We can look at all of those different, you know, look at those different buckets and those different issues and say, how can if if we can address this to to meet the needs of our our members our local business owners um then we're doing a lot for a lot of different people you know and addressing a lot of those issues because you're either an employer or an employee <laughs> in this world and so if we can um if we can fix things for um our local businesses we're going a long way in in addressing a lot of these of these issues so i think there is a way to 
tackle it. And then again, to, to Marianne's point, to bring these voices up that we're hearing to these different levels, to the state level, and to say, hey, you know, like just really elevate those voices so that the responses are fitting the, you know, the issues as, as they're happening and that they're the right size for the issues and for the people that are in need of, of the assistance. So I'm hearing you emphasize elevating voices. Tell me what that means. How are you doing that? Yeah, I'm going to turn that over to uh, Mary. Sure. I mean, we were, you know, working on, on a couple of different uh, national groups where we are in sort of subcommittees of independent business alliances like our own. And so um, we would be then bringing these policy recommendations um, to those who have the experience and the capacity um, to fold them into things that are more long term. Um, you know, there are a few different examples, but uh, certainly with regard um, to um, municipalities, maybe through federal funds that come through states or not, um, having more autonomy about saying what kinds of tax relief or reprieve they want to give to a business. In neighborhoods where maybe you have, um, you know, a small band that's got social distancing between it and you can, a band can social distance if it's, you know, three or four or five musicians and, and do something in a, let's say, let's take by road as an example, because that's what I'm very familiar with. I live near there. Um, uh, why can't we do an event on Bayou Road, um, on not, not unlike some that we've done in the past, where we're not trying to build a huge crowd and people can uh, so, do social distance. It requires discipline. It is, it is still, um, there's a threat, but um, rather than just saying, okay, we can't do any outdoor cultural, whatever, why can't we be thinking about how do we, how do we spread out and do smaller events in neighborhoods around commercial corridors, for example. Surely has that, that occurred to you guys? There is, I think that is exactly when we talk to business owners about once we can, how does that look? Because that's, that's the slow unfolding. It, eventually, the, the issue obviously right now, of course, is that idea of it's kind of like the, um, you know, um, bright lights, big city, or if you build it, they will come is like, if you create a venue encouraging, you know, is, is the discipline there? Um, and it, is that just sort of giving people permission or a false sense of security? So it's like, you know, like, I love the mayor's uh, refrain, um, I'm driven by data, not by a date. And I think that's that same thing is if we if we can be disciplined enough to say, what is that number? It's a single digit um, of when new cases are coming up in the single digits, you know, we're getting lower in the number of cases if we test like crazy. Um, and so we know that the, the case number is accurate, but we're just not there yet. So to do anything, I'm just, you know, that that spike, it, we only had 47 new cases in the last 24 hours, but 23 deaths. And if you go back two to three weeks, it's like, when was that? That was Easter. You know, and people did start feeling like a little bit like they couldn't resist, you know, and so we just, I'm, I'm, it's a correlation that I'm just drawing in my own mind, but those are the sorts of things where once we give ourselves an inch, you know, can we make sure we're not going to end up taking a mile in terms of that 
permissiveness, especially if we have like a little beer, a little wine while we're out there listening to that music while we're social distancing. Um, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know that we're ready for that, that yet, but we're, uh, everybody's, everybody's yeah, mentally ready. But. I'm certainly not suggesting that this is something that happens anytime soon, but uh, I think that people are horrified at the notion that we can't have any festivals in 2020. Absolutely. And, I love what the, I love what, um, though, I just love the, the kind of the vibe that's coming out from WWOZ with its like um, festing in place uh, stuff and the eight hours a day of the best of the best of the fest. And you know, that, um, that sort of like communal festing, you know, feeding that, I think that's just- um, Are you really saying festing or testing? Festing in place, the jazz fest, the virtual jazz fest stuff that they're rolling out is is really um, wonderful, and and I'm you know I think a lot of people are like yeah I can get behind this and I can look forward to this. This is this is a cool alternative for the time being. Again, we we do also have some things that are unique to who we are and what we do. We have front porches. We have places that we gather that are are large, really large, you know, and not every community has these natural. I go to city park every day. It does not feel crowded. People are absolutely respectful of one another. And when you think about some of the festivals that have started in city park and had to move out because it was, they were impacting the park, um, you know, commercially and in possibly a little bit of a negative way on the park side in terms of the park's maintenance. Um, you know, we sort of are having a, accidental festival every day in the park <laughs> in a way um but you know front we could just start with front porches and it's still a way to get people back into practicing commerce if we say this neighborhood on whatever day everyone's you know front porch sitting and it's then there's a theme and like you say gene and there's an and there's a band way 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 at the end of the street where no one can go uh, I have been absolutely undisciplined in allowing our interview um, to go on about three times as long as I was supposed to, but I, I kind of felt that this was an important conversation, and I'm, um, I'm happy to uh, change the format of my show to accommodate what we've been talking about, but before I end it, I do want to, and we'll have plenty of opportunity to come back, and you can update me on what's going on, and I really would appreciate that, because this is the heart and soul of I think um, how we need to be thinking about the city going forward at so many different levels. But if I could ask you for your closing thoughts um, that I did not uh, provoke during our conversation and, um, and then kind of maybe give me a little bit of a tip sheet on things we should be looking towards uh, coming up in the near future. And then um, I will, as I said, for one thing, I, I may actually run this as a podcast this week as a, a, a video. I don't know what you call a video podcast. There must be a word for it, but I'm going to get this out as a video. <clears throat> and then um, uh, I may, maybe I'll edit it uh, for uh, radio. We'll see how, how, what we do with it, but we're going to do a lot with it. So is it, closing thoughts. Well, I would say um, my two thoughts are um, the businesses are, open, you know, and they, they have figured out ways to, to safely continue to transact and to keep people on the payroll. And if you are looking for, and it's not just um, the food, but the, the other um, stores as well, um, definitely check out staylocal.org's directory, COVID directory, and businesses, if you're out there, make sure you get on that directory too, so people know where to go. We've got some, some spots airing, and we're just trying to encourage people 
to remember, you know, you still got Mother's Day and graduation gifts and all of that stuff coming up. So shop local for it all. Thank you. Marianne? The effort that has come nationally from hearing all these local business owners' voices and those voices of those who support them can continue to be followed. You know, there was a big uptick because we were fighting for those additional funds for the stimulus to small businesses, but follow the hashtag small biz needs now because whatever small business needs, we're trying to channel it through the same thought. Small business needs are coming from the small business owners through this hashtag small biz needs now. So whatever day it is, if you follow that hashtag, you're going to know what's going on right now for small businesses. And is or business small biz. small biz needs now. Okay. Thank you. And, and, Pre-coronavirus, Stay Local had always said, when you go to click that Amazon button, those, those funds are gone. You can't get them back. Can, reconsider um, when there is something available locally. And now that there are so many more people delivering and offering different types of customer service, if you just shift 10% of your shopping permanently from here forth, 10% absolutely consistently local, um, the impact that we'll see in a few years will, will really be something we can measure favorably. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for both of those ladies. Um, so this has been uh, Dana Ennis and Marianne Miller with Stay Local. I can't tell you how much uh, I appreciate what you all do. And um, by the way, I just want to mention just for your information that uh, the Creative Alliance of New Orleans in partnership with you and other organizations is doing this um, uh, vir uh, basically uh, virtual um, tours of uh, art studios and galleries to try to keep the arts in front of people and actually to help them understand what artists are, are doing and maybe as a way of, uh, of either acquainting or reacquainting them with the work being produced here so that again, we can sell local art because that's an important thing also. Um, thank you so, so much and uh, stay at it. And um, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jean. Further conversations with our audience and um, uh, supporters of our local economy. Bye thanks, guys. Jean. Bye of the Ella Project, uh, which has been involved for quite a while now, I don't know how many years, he'll tell me, um, in helping uh, people in the cultural community, uh, I, would, I would say with some emphasis on musicians, um, handling the legal work that has historically been a real hindrance to the careers of people, um, culture bearers and musicians and others in the city. Um, so right now, their uh, services have, of course, come into play even more than ever. And um, uh, Jean, I wanted you to share with us um, how you all are trying to help in general, and then specifically right now for COVID. Sure. So yeah, Jean, as you said, the Ella Project is working in pro bono legal assistance and arts business development here in New Orleans uh, for, for many years, uh, first is when we were involved with the arts and then in 2016 we spun off to an independent organization um so what we're doing right now uh first thing that is is you know what we've been doing which is by direct one-on-one -on -one legal assistance for artists and matters of contract copyrights um trademark etc that continues and you know there is still work that is going on there is still a need for people to have their legal ducks in a row and people are looking to sign new deals and continue to move forward. That said, um, we all know that especially the life of a touring musician is pretty much 
ground to a complete halt right now. And New Orleans music economy, more than most cities, is based on live performances. You know, we've never been a recording town. We're not a recording town now. And we never probably will be. So the vast majority of our musicians make their money by playing live. And no one can play live anywhere in the world right now. So, so this is a significant problem. Um, so we've twirled our resources a decent amount towards helping these artists and musicians, filmmakers, whoever it may be, in figuring out a way to access a lot of the government relief programs that have been set up. And, and what we found is, is that, you know, this is the first time that self-employed musicians, to my knowledge, have been able to apply for things like unemployment before. It used to not be a thing. Um, so really set for them to do that. And through no fault of their own, um, the state unemployment office was just completely overwhelmed with calls. And so it's been good for us to be able to provide a resource where people can talk to somebody because they're not one of 200,000 people trying to call the same number to talk to, you know, a handful probably of unemployment specialists who work for the state of Louisiana. Yeah. So it's been really good to have someone that they can talk to and that's been us. And we can explain how the system is working right now, um, what they need to do for people that haven't had computers, you know, we've taken it over the phone. That's the other thing. You have some of our older musician populations, sure. they yeah. were used to going to libraries and checking their email at the library. Well, they can't do that anymore either. So, you know, it's literally been sitting there talking to him on the phone and saying, all right, I'm going to fill out this form for you. Let's, let's talk it through because, because they don't have access to a computer and the, and the phones are so jammed up at the state. So, you know, that's one way that we've been able to help right now. And just also provided a lot of information. You know, there's a lot of funds out there, but the funds get tapped really quickly. So artists need to move quickly. You know, there was one that was announced Actually, yesterday like morning. To, Go yeah, ahead. I was going to stop you right there because that's something I've been worried about, um, uh, is there a sense that the money's gonna run out? And so you better get in queue now, or is it, uh, it is sufficient that um, even if you uh, don't apply immediately, and I'm sure there are a lot of guys who, and, and women who are, are unsure of how to do this, who are not moving fast. I mean, for private foundations, yes, 100% the money will and has run out in multiple ones. Is, is, we saw yesterday with a with a program that was targeted for jazz musicians. You know, it opened at 9 a.m. in the morning and it closed at 11:59 that night. And they didn't expect it to close at 11:59 that night when they first announced it. But then they found out, oh my God, we're so overwhelmed. You know, we're already out of money. And so, for anyone who's a private line to private relief funds. Yeah, get it in immediately because we're seeing funds that are open for one or two days and then they're just out of resources, you know, they're and they're starting off with good. They're not starting off with $5,000. I mean, they're starting off with hundreds of thousands of dollars, but because we have, you know, a global issue here, the demand is just so great. Now, you know, for government, it's a little bit of a different story. I mean, right now there are, there are the ability for these government funds to run out as well, but Congress can go back into session when they do and just appropriate more money. So, you know, what you may see there is just a lag. 
Um, I don't anticipate that the United States government is going to just stop paying these things out altogether. But when they passed the CARES Act, I mean, they did put caps in there. And those caps are going to be reached and the demand is going to exceed them. And Congress is going to have to get back in and do a, a supplemental to that. Um, but when they do that is an open question. So yeah, my advice to everybody is, is don't delay. Get it in now um, and just, just keep at it. And if you need help, we can help. So um, give me just kind of a highly simplistic outline of um, what you see is the key uh, sources that are available and um, to give people just a little bit of a, 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 a comfortable notion of how, uh, what it is that's out there and, and uh, how to go after it. Yeah, I mean, I think the key source for especially independent artists right now is, is the unemployment, which has been supplemented by the federal government because, you know, you've got the federal government kicking in $600 a week for a maximum of 13 weeks. So, you know, you're talking then $2,400 a month for three months, so up to seven, $8,000. The most general private foundation fund that you're gonna see is not gonna be able to do that. Um, there's no way that any foundation fund is gonna be able to pay $8,000 to all the out of work independent artists right now. Um, the largest fund we see there is that our national funds are, are $5,000, which you're seeing with some of the local funds, which have done great work and have put a lot of resources in the community that the Jazz and Heritage Foundation came up with, the Business Alliance came up with, et cetera. You know, those are like 500 and $1,000 funds. That's very important, especially because it got the money flowing quicker than the feds did because the feds had a lag. Um, but at this point, now that the, the federal unemployment money has reached the state coffers and they are beginning to distribute it, that's definitely the best option for an independent artist. For small nonprofits, it's the Paycheck Protection Plan, where they can get payroll covered. The, the application is a little bit wonky, um, and it has to run through your existing bank. But for all small businesses and nonprofits that have payroll, um, that's the way to go. So I think really what we see is that despite the um, overwhelming desire and the, and the work that the private philanthropic community has done, it's just too big a problem. The only real way to actually adequately get money in the hands of the people that need it right now is through these two government programs. So I, I have two questions about that. So um, in, 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 you're saying unemployment in one case. So that means, doesn't that require the predicate of having been actually employed as opposed to a, a con being a contractor? Not, not right now. It used to. And that's the way that it has been from, from time immemorial. But because they realize that so many independent uh, workers, whether they be artists, whether they be you know, construction workers, were out of work these days, um, they have changed the system. So you do have to have had gigs before. You can't be like, well, I'm a musician. And they're like, well, you know, where have you been playing in the last three years? And you're like, oh, I haven't played anywhere. Okay. You know, that's going to be, that's something that you're probably not going to be able to get much out of. Um, but, you know, I'm a weekly musician. I'm a, I'm a musician who had weekly gigs. They paid me in cash. Um, here's my records, even if you don't necessarily have tax forms um, from that club, because a lot of clubs, let's be honest, did not put out 1099s to all their musicians. Should they have done this? Yes. So, so if you don't have income tax filings, you can still apply for this is what you're saying. That's absolutely correct. Yes. That's very important. Yeah. Yes. 
Now on the payroll protection, again, and you and I talked about this a little bit um, since I have the problem of having not been on payroll for a while. I was trying to figure out, is there anything there for me at all? And um, no, the answer is no, that um, uh, you, for that particular program, you really have to have been in a W-2 status as opposed to a 1099, is that right? I mean, it's complicated. Um, there is ways to do it if things were 1099, but you had to actually be paying yourself. So even if that organization was being run where, you know, a small business where it wasn't necessarily set up where the person was taking a salary, they were taking more of what we consider an owner's draw. Um, and they weren't getting a, you know, a biweekly paycheck or something like that. You can still apply for that, but you do have had to have had payroll in the last year. Um, and it is potentially a little bit more complicated. It's certainly the program, it's easier to apply for if you're just applying for your W-2 employees. So uh, interesting, um, not to make this personal, but um, every time I took a small amount of money because I was just really had to, I try to leave all the money in the organization and pay others. Um, I've called it partial payroll. So I, I viewed it as money against the payroll I should have been getting. Does that count? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, it, it's worth talking to your banker about. Okay. All right. So how, how do you see this going forward? You said you think that there's going to be another, and everybody's assuming that there's going to be something further coming from Congress um, at least once. But then what? How do, I mean, you see, how do you see this? How do you see the transition into the... Um, I, I don't want to call it post-COVID, but uh, let's say the next phase, whatever that happens to be, when maybe uh, some states start uh, uh, reopening some uh, essential businesses or non-essential businesses. How do you see the next phase? I mean, I think that's the question that we're all asking right now. I mean, from I think focusing from the arts and culture sector, um, you're going to see something that is a slow rollout, and you're going to see... You know, I, you're not going to see 20,000 uh, arena concerts back in the summer. Um, it's just not going to happen. People aren't going to be comfortable to do it, and the promoters aren't going to be able to, to put things, in, things out there. You know, so do you start to see rollout for live performances that is more, you know, a 50-seat venue, um, a smaller venue? Does this mean for a lot of the clubs in New Orleans that traditionally have not charged cover charges that we go back to that model? because there's only a certain number of tickets that you now have to have because you have to have a much tighter control on your occupancy. You know, it, mm -hmm. Is this basically looking at, you know, every venue that opens up, they have a maximum number that the fire department sets. Maybe it's 300 people. Is it, does this now become something where, okay, you can reopen, but you can only have 100 people in a 300-person venue or 75 people, something like that? I, I, I think that's pretty possible. Um, so what does that do for our large festivals and even smaller, you know, local festivals? Um, I think it's a very good question. And I think it puts Louisiana in a much more complicated position than it puts other states in. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that it's an impossible hurdle to overcome, but it does mean that business models need to change a little bit. And it'll be interesting to see five years down the line how the business models have reacted to this and how they have changed. Because we know people are going to want culture they're going to want experiences but we also know that at least probably for the next 12 months they're not going to be able to get them exactly the way they were 
um, on February 1st. So um, how are you almost be thinking in terms of Ella Project and how you among all of us may be changing your um, model uh, for how you're going to deal with this universe. Are you, uh, presumably, you've started to think about that. Do you have any kind of hints as to how you feel like that's going to go? Well, I think every organization needs to be really designed to be flexible and agile, and, and, and ours is. I mean, you know, we, we, can't, we were started a little bit before Hurricane Katrina, but only about six months before. And so we really did a lot of growth in that post-Katrina period. And at that time, you know, shifted our delivery of services model a lot. And I think that we're, we're going to see that happen again, you know, whether that is transferring to more information going online, which is already happening. We already have workshops and webinars that we're doing online, whether that is more just direct services like we talked about earlier that aren't necessarily 100% legal based, like helping people fill out these applications who don't have access to it otherwise. Um, these are conversations that I think every organization is having with their senior staff, with their board, with their funders. You know, what does, what does grant funding look like as, you know, as foundations may look to shift some of their funding priorities around a little bit. Um, do organizations that don't change get left in behind? I, I think they probably will. Um, so this is why, this is why running a quick and uh, agile organization that can change with the times is, is crucial for su survival, whether it's for-profit or non-profit right now. Yeah, it's the first time in 10 years that I've been um, thinking, well, maybe it such, wasn't such a bad thing that I had almost no staff because yeah. I didn't have to figure out how was I going to try to keep my staff going um, with, with all our resources um, diminished. Um, so, so if you were to put a, um, and we're going to be out of time pretty soon, but are you, if you were to put your um, positive hat on this, uh, where do you see the silver lining, if any? I mean, I think that what we've seen from previous um, disasters is that culture is so important to people and there's such a need for it. And you see it right now with all the streaming concerts that are taking place. You see it right now with the virtual art markets that are taking place, is that regardless of what our lives look like over the next six months, that the culture, especially a beloved culture like the culture of New Orleans, is going to play such a huge role in people's mental well-being and the return to whatever sort of sense of normalcy they can have that um, I think it's so important for the creatives to, to keep working and to be ready because the, the general public's gonna need our services. They're gonna need our work just Very to make well themselves done. feel whole. And you know, there's an uh, article in the New York Times this morning. I barely had a chance to look at anything, but I did grab this uh, one piece that was written by somebody who had had the virus. And what he was talking about is how much more complicated recovery after the virus is. And one of the complicating factors is psychological. So there are literally symptomatic issues that linger for weeks um, that have not been really, uh, that's, that narrative hasn't been told. So the assumption is 14 days after you've first been proven negative, um, that's pretty much it. But no, these people are, are experiencing sim uh, symptoms kind of cyclically going on for weeks. 
Um, so th that's uh, causing anxiety and depression for them. And so I think that you're, you're, the need to um, address how people feel and think about their place in life at this point is, is going to be a part of what you're saying. They're going to need our, our music, our culture. And, um, and uh, Ella Project's going to help try to make sure that the musicians are in a position to, to do that. I can't tell you how much I appreciate what you do, Jean, and, and your openness and, and willingness to help other people all, all the time. You've always been that way. And um, I'm glad that you and um, your organization and your people are, are there. So thank you so much. And listen, you come back and tell us anytime you want about things that you feel uh, folks need to know. I welcome you back uh, on the show anytime you need to uh, share something with us. Thank you, Jean. You've always been a great friend and supporter, and we appreciate everything. Thank you so, so much. All right. You take care. All right, Be take safe. Care. Stay right there on that porch. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Bye. I think you might have found that just a little bit interesting and helpful, uh, but here's what's really key. Um, listen, you stay safe and healthy at home. This isn't going to be over uh, so quickly, as some people around the country think. Um, so it's really important. Staying at home, sheltering in place, and testing, those are the key words for the moment. Please pay attention and do that for all our sakes, your family, you, and everybody else. This is Jean Nathan, it's Crosstown Conversations and WBOK, what New Orleans is talking about.